Yeah, I want to thank uh, those who are a part of that ministry. Uh, many of you maybe didn't even know we had this, but it's this great ministry to our single uh, moms here at Seacoast. And we're going to do something this year as a church family uh, to kind of come alongside a lot of these families. And as you know, it's been a challenging year for almost everyone this year on different levels. And uh, particularly for those who are living in a home with maybe one income and have some of that reduced or even in some cases taken away and when you're trying to figure out childcare at the same time of raising, uh, when you're doing it alone and trying to figure out how you can work and support the family. So here's what we're going to do. As a church, uh, we have uh, worked with that ministry to say what are some of the needs, what's a way that we can, as a church family, adopt these families to help them Take some of the stress off of celebrating the Christmas season and little things like even helping with some of the gifts or some food around the holidays is a way that we can uh, support. And I know for some of you, you think, well, is that really a, a big help? Trust me, anything that we can do to relieve, relieve some of uh, the burden or some of the fears and the shame and all of that in that family that we can say, no, we have a, you have a whole church who loves you and wants to walk with you. Uh, to support you during this season. We want to do that as a church. So here's what you can do. If you go to respond.church, there is a link there to the Single uh, Moms Ministry on respond.church. Follow that link to the Single Moms Ministry, and there is a, essentially it's like a sign-up GDS. You can choose if you want to buy a gift for one of the kids, if you want to help uh, with some of the food, or whatever it might be. Let's go ahead and let's make sure as a church family we adopt all those families and, and help them this Christmas season. So respond at church, click on the single uh, mom's ministry link, and you can follow it from there uh, to support. So let's pray as we get started this morning. We thank you so much, God, for people in our church who model the ways and words of Jesus, giving of themselves for others, expecting nothing in return but simply just be in your hands and feet. So we thank you for the ministry to our single moms. We thank you for those families. And we pray, God, that you would continue to work in the lives, in their lives, and bring blessings, Lord. And ultimately, may many, many lives be transformed and changed through the work being done right here at Seacoast. So we thank you. We lift that up to you. And now, Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you would shape us, change us, and help us understand you more. And speak to each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 1. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving weekend here in San Diego, so it's only 70 degrees. You know, it's cold, frigid, kind of winter weather for us. That's for all of you online watching from out of state. Sorry. Uh, but So we are enjoying this down here. But Thanksgiving weekend, I, I, I just have a few questions. How many of you... Is Thanksgiving the, the beginning when you can now listen to Christmas music? How many of your houses, you're like, okay, Christmas music is now, okay. Some of you, is it maybe next week, December 1st? Anyone December 1st? How many of you are like, Christmas Day is when Christmas music can start in my house? Yeah, a few, some of you say, no, it, it can never start. But okay, that's fine. So Thanksgiving, I know for many of you, um, I knew one person who was exact, it was in July. It was exactly six months before Christmas their family started listening to Christmas music. So uh, if you started, that's not too bad. That You can be grateful that's not July. So anyway, but I love sometimes how music sets the mode and mood, and it, it reminds us of the season. And uh, there's, just, there's not a lot of Thanksgiving songs, though, for Thanksgiving weekend. I know 
uh, Over the Hill and Through the Woods to Grandmother's House. That's actually a Thanksgiving song, I, I think. So, yeah, so there's nothing about Christmas in it. It's a Thanksgiving song, so we got that one. And then this year, uh, may, some of you, maybe you know the singer uh, Ben Rector. He came out with a, an album this year and in 2020, and he has one called The Thanksgiving Song. So I, I kind of like that there's a line in it that says this. At the end, he says, we, and remember, it's written this year. We made it through, I do believe, the longest year in history. So thank God for Thanksgiving Day. And the whole song is about just Thanksgiving allows us to kind of refocus, count where we are blessed, and, and recognize what God's doing in our lives through family and all that. So some of you, maybe this has felt like the longest year in history. And so it's good to have a weekend where we can reset and think about the way that God ha does move in our lives. And for me, like I said, music often helps communicate those things. In fact, so to start off today, there is a song, there's a music moment in my life that is still part of this huge memory, this music moment in my life that's a memory that I've had for many, many years. And it revolves around a song by the band Cool in the Gang. Come on, anybody? Cool in the Gang? No? Half of you are like, uh, is that like a rap group? What is that? You know, so Cool in the Gang. And uh, so now you know my age, or maybe you don't, as you're looking on your phones about Cool and the Gang. But yes, this song was on the radio one day. I was home from kindergarten, so now you can start to piece how old I was. I remember I was home because it was such a memorable music moment. The song by Cool Gang was on, and it was, Celebrate Good Times. Okay, yeah, yeah, some of you got it. Good, good. We all know that song. So that song was on the radio. And in the middle of it, the DJ came on and said, we interrupt this program to bring you this breaking news. Now, I, I thought, as my little kindergarten self, I thought that was the coolest thing because that's only in cartoons. That's the only time that ever happens, like on Scooby-Doo or something. But now in real life, they interrupted my song by Cool and the Gang to bring some breaking news. And then they said, the president has been shot. Now, I know. Some of you are saying, wait, which pre President Lincoln? Who, who's been shot? I know. Some of you just, you're thinking, how long ago was this? But this was Ronald Reagan, who was a president in the 80s, and he got shot. But he lived. It's okay. He made it through. But I remember that moment still in the middle of my Cool in the Gang song, which is a really cool song, and saying, we interrupt this program, the president's been shot. That moment was such, that disruption was so memorable that I still can see it in my head to this time, day. In fact, I went and told my mom, like, Mom, the president's been shot, which is usually not the news you want to get from a five-year-old. But, you know, I was the, the bearer of that news that day. So, but disruptions in our lives can sometimes be the most memorable things in shaping things that we have. Many of us look at this last year, and we say this year has been a disruption. If it hasn't been for you, then I don't know where you've been. But this year has been a disruption. And for many of us, as we look at it, the question that we want to ask is, why are we going through this? And what does God do in the midst of disruption? And that's why this Advent series this year is called The Divine Disruption. Because we started thinking about the original Christmas story. And what we realized, that the original story was a disruption. It was God breaking into history in a time when people were hoping for it, but maybe not expecting it, and in a way that they were not expecting God to break in. 
and it was going to change things that they were not expecting God to change. So it became a major disruption. As we look through the Bible and start to think about stories in the Bible, almost every time God showed up in someone's life, it was a disruption. Abraham was just living, minding his own business. God shows up and says, I want you to move from this country, move to a new place, and start a new family. Moses was tending sheep. He was just walking around in the hills, in the desert, and a burning bush appears, and God shows up and says, no, I have a new plan for you. You're going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. Even David was bringing food to his brothers before he was a king. He was just a, a shepherd boy bringing lunch to his brothers who were in battle, and he sees this, king, or this giant mocking God, and so David steps in, and everything changed. It was a disruption. He wasn't expecting it. Even the nation of Israel was going about their business, wandering away from God. And all of a sudden, even as the prophets warned them of it, something that was happening, they were taken out of their land. First the northern kingdom was taken, and then the southern kingdom was taken. They were disrupted because God wanted to get their attention. The Christmas story, almost every character we will meet was disrupted. Think of this young couple who was engaged to be married, Mary and Joseph. Very familiar. Think about disruption. That was a disruption. And in all those moments, God wanted to do something that maybe they weren't expecting. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at part of the Christmas story and ask and see how is God disrupting in the story and then what does that mean for us today? But before we can get to Matthew 1, let me just tell you a few things. We need to understand, what was it like for the Israelites? What was it like to live in Israel, and what were they expecting when Jesus showed up? And I'm not going to get into all the details, because year after year we kind of get deep into the history. But a few things to, to just recap really quickly is Israel at this point had been a, a nation pretty successful but they were taken into exile two different times, one the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom, in 700, and, and then in the 500s uh, B.C. They were taken into exile. So now then some of them were allowed to return, but it was under various empires. They suffered under the Babylonian Empire, the Persians, the Greek Empire, and then the Romans. You got that? That one's on the test. It's the first question. So they, they're living in occupation and under the, the empire, uh, these empires for now at this point, either 586 or 722 years. So think of if your identity was wrapped up in your country, your God, your faith, and all of that's been pulled away. Now, they returned. They're living in the land but they're still under occupation. At the time of birth of Christ, they're under the Roman occupation. But empire after empire who came in brought their foreign gods and goddesses, sacrifices being made, worshiping in very different ways than anything they could expect. And so if you were someone who was devout or clinging for the days when your God would show up again, you'd start to pour over the scriptures and ask questions about, God, what, what are you doing with our nation? And there's a few things. They had this expectation, expectations of a Messiah. Messiah essentially means the anointed one or someone that God was going to appoint to come and deliver the people. Now, I want to just show you a few verses. There's hundreds of verses really in the Bible that give us hints of this. But these are verses 
that were important to the Jews before Jesus came. These, all of them in the Old Testament is before Christ. But sometimes people say, oh, Christians, you just read into the story. You see what Jesus did, and then you say, oh, okay, here's how it fits. But I'm going to give you just a few verses that these were ones that we know from history and non-Christian writings that were writing and expecting what the Messiah would do before the birth of Christ. So these are from the Bible, but these were ones that we know that they talked about, that they preached about, they wrote about. This is what they expected of the Messiah. I'm going to give you these very quickly and, and get into the text. But this is just that context to know what were they expecting. First thing is this. Genesis 3.15, it says, A ruler will be born, or someone will be born of a woman who will have the power to crush the head of Satan once and for all. Okay? So that was known as one of their messianic verses. Another one in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, when Abraham was called to be the father of the nations, they said, Through you and through your descendants, all of the earth will be blessed. Well, prior to Christ, they would say, Well, that must mean that through us, the Messiah is going to come to our family and will be a blessing to all of the nations in the world. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there's this prophecy. It says there'll be a leader who will come out of the tribe of Judah, and that leader will be the expectation of the nations. So there's this, the Messiah is coming. It'll be a leader from the tribe of Judah. Now it's getting a little more specific, and all the world will be expecting this person. Uh, Psalm 72, verses 5 through 7, they use this as a messianic verse. It says, this ruler will be from eternity and will exist until eternity. And in him, the righteous will flourish. So somehow, this ruler who will come has this eternal existence. So now you're getting an idea that, oh, maybe it's not just a political leader, but there's something divine or superhuman about this person. And in this person, righteousness, so we can now have this right relationship with God. In Isaiah chapter 9, it was our Advent reading for today. It says the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be, one of the names given to him will be Mighty God. So the Messiah now they're thinking is a mighty God. Isaiah 43, it's a servant who is going to come and fulfill what Israel cannot. So Israel as a nation was called to uh, represent God's ways, to be a blessing to the nations. They were called a servant. But the Messiah then was to replace Israel because Israel, where Israel failed. Isaiah 53 Verses 13, or around 12 and 13 says, This Messiah will cleanse us of our sins. So these are just some of the verses that were used prior to Christ. These are all obviously part of the Old Testament and part prior to Christ. But we know that they longed for these. They said, this is, These are identities of the Messiah. So this shows us that they had some expectation. And the longer time went on, the more they were saying, God, when will this come true? Because the last writing in the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. There's been silence now for almost 400 years before the birth of Christ. So we know in the synagogues, even in the time of Christ, they would read these ancient passages. Often we see Jesus open up the Isaiah scroll. In fact, we have a copy, not we, not me, but found in the caves of Qumran of the Dead Sea Scrolls of the entire uh, text or the entire Isaiah scroll has been found predating Christ, 23 feet long of Hebrew writing, showing all of these prophecies. It was really important to the early community, Jewish community. So now God shows up. So now, let's look at Matthew chapter 1. This is the context in which Matthew wants to tell us the story of the Messiah. Now, this, we're going to start in verse 1. This is the most Christmassy story you'll see. 
Maybe if you've ever read the Christmas story, you, have a, you may have, like I will do often, skip over the first 16 verses. But we're not going to today because this is Christmassy. You ready for it? Come on, Seacoast, you out there? You ready? All right, Christmas story. Here it goes. Here's how Matthew starts his Christmas story. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's off to a good start. Christmas story. Here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the, fa- Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez by Z- uh, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. You feel the Christmas vibes? It's the most wonderful time. Yes, that's what's going through my head. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Anyone expecting a kid? There are names all over in here, ideas all over the place. So this is how Matthew starts off. He starts off with the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm not going to read all of those for you today. But there's four things that we see through this genealogy. I'll point out some more details where Matthew is telling us this disruption of the Messiah is a story of a few different things. And the first thing is this. He wants us to know from the beginning, this is going to be the story of Jesus' life, his ways, his words, and works. So he starts out, and you go, okay, I get that. That's an easy one. That's the first thing that we see, in, in, and there's something special about Jesus. He starts off, and he says, Jesus, he gives him a title. The Messiah, some of your translations might say Jesus the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah. It means anointed. So he says, Jesus the Messiah. That's how he starts off. That means that he's going to usher in all those things that we already looked at. It's going to usher in God's healing. It's, it, his kingdom is coming. There's something about the Messiah that's coming. So Matthew wants you to know this is the story of Jesus' life. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. That means that he's in the royal line of the Messiah. And he's the son of Abraham. He says that because Abraham is the father of the nation. So he's saying he's a true Israelite. So when we see the story of Jesus the Messiah, he's in the royal line of David, which is what they expect of the Messiah, and he's a true Israelite. That might not seem like a very big deal to you. But what he's saying to his very Jewish audience, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience who understood the scriptures and the expectations. He's saying, Jesus, the story you're about to hear is the climax of the story of Israel. Jesus, the story that Matthew's about to recall is the one you've been waiting for. And in a very ancient Near Eastern way, knowing your family tree was a very vital part of understanding who Jesus was. So he said, I want you to know this is the story of Jesus and his life, his ways, his words, his works. And there's something very special about this person you're about to hear about. So that's how he starts off. The next thing we're going to see is this, that Matthew wants us to know that this is a story of God using anything and anyone. Let me show you a few things that happen in this genealogy. I already got to one of them. In verse 3, it says, Judah was a father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So he mentions the mom, Tamar. Okay? Track with me. Keep going. This all will make sense. Verse 5 says, Salmon. Again, you're looking for good names. Wouldn't that be cool to call your kid Salmon? (laughs) Salmon was a father of Boaz by Rahab. There's a second woman mentioned. 
Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, the third woman mentioned. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, some of your translations don't have the word Bathsheba. So you might look down and say, no, it doesn't say that. The original Greek actually doesn't say that. Some of our translations put that in so that we understand who he's talking about. But the first audience knew. Matthew did not mention Bathsheba. All he said was, was Solomon, or David was the father of Solomon, by the one who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's it. So what does this mean? These four women, and then the fifth woman named will be Mary later on. A few things really quickly. Tamar, her story was one that I guess the nicest way to say it, it was a scandalous story. It's the nicest way. Read in the book of Genesis, you can find about Judah and Tamar. It is not a Christmas story. But through some deception and deceit and lots of uh, inappropriate behavior, you have then Judah and Tamar have a child. We don't know if Tamar was an Israelite. Probably was not. She's married into the family. They have a child. The next one we hear about is Rahab. Rahab was a Jebusite. She was not part of the nation of Israel. And her former occupation was she was a prostitute. Again, we're writing the story of the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus. There are some things in your family history that when you tell people about where you're from, you just kind of leave it out, right? There's some stories like, oh, yeah, let's not mention that one uncle in this story. Let's just, let's forget about that part. No, Matthew's saying, I want you to hear all of these stories. Some of you are, when I said don't mention that uncle, looked at each other like, yeah, and said, hey, you're that uncle. Anyway, so trying to keep you awake here. Thank you for, thank you for laughing with that one. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> so you have Rahab was a prostitute, not an Israelite. She converts to Judaism, has Boaz. Boaz becomes a father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth was also not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. At many times in Israel's history was an enemy. She converts. She becomes a Jew. She says, your family will be my family, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And she actually is the only righteous one in this list other than Mary. And then it gets to David, the father of Solomon, by the one who had been the wife of Uriah. How would you like that to be part of your story? Hi, I'm Solomon. David's my father. My mother used to be the wife of someone else. That's the story. That's what Matthew is telling us. Now, a few things. That is bizarre in the ancient world to do a couple things. One, to mention the dirty laundry, to talk about all the mistakes that were made in your family history, and two, to mention women at all. If we look at Luke's genealogy, when he talks about the genealogy of Jesus, he writes one and doesn't include any women in it. So Matthew is doing something very intentional and very countercultural. What he is saying is this, this is a story of God who's going to use anything and anyone for his purposes. This is for men and for women, for Jews and for Gentiles, for saints and for sinners. And in the very beginning of the Christmas story, Matthew wants us to know that this story about Jesus is about Jesus, but we all can fit in the story. No matter who you are, whatever your background, whatever you've done, wherever you've come from, the story's for you, too.
And Matthew made that very clear to the original audience. Less clear to us, but it's very clear to the original audience. Here's the next thing. So the first thing was a story of Jesus. It's a story of God using anything and anyone. Now the next one is this. It's a story of God making all things new. Let me show you something else. In verse 7, Matthew's writing. Don't you love this history? I know. You were expecting the cute little Christmas story today, but this is what you're getting. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Man, so Christmassy. Abijah was the father of Asa. How many of your translations have Asa in there if you're reading? Okay, that's incorrect. My translation has it. Uh, A lot of our translations put Asa because Asa is the right name. Technically, that is correct, but that's not what Matthew wrote. Matthew actually took the name Asa, which is the right name, and he added one letter to the end of it in Greek and called it Asaph. Now, you say, you can't do that. We are a westernized, enlightened world where you have to, everything has to line up and make perfect sense. That's not right. Well, Matthew didn't live in our world. He was Middle Eastern, living a Middle Eastern culture with mindset. Yes, they can change things if it made a point, and he was making a point. He was trying to communicate something very significant here. Asa was one of the kings in Israel, and he was one of the worst, probably the worst. Wicked, unrighteous, unrelenting, foreign gods and goddesses, turning away from the ways of Yahweh. Just anything that they're asked to do, he didn't do. Asaph, or Asaph, we find in our scriptures in very subtle ways. One of, the leading, one of the persons who wrote more psalms than anyone else other than David. So a lot of our psalms are psalms from Asaph or Asaph. What Matthew's doing here is he very intentionally, again, the first audience, when they heard this, they would say, oh, you changed Asaph into Asaph. Wonder why he did that. And it would cause the first century Hebrews to ask the question, why did he do that? Because they're not thinking, man, he's an idiot. He got that wrong. They're thinking, There's something up with that. So he changed it from one of the most wicked kings to someone whose words and ways were praising God and pointing their hearts back to Yahweh. There's one more thing in verse 10. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. How many of you have Amon in your Bibles? Okay, Amon is correct from a genealogy standpoint. It is not what Matthew wrote. Matthew changed it and said Amos. He changed one letter and made it Amos, the prophet Amos. Again, you ask, why would he do that? Well, Amon, again, had works of unrighteousness and wickedness and not not the justice that God has called him to. The prophet Amos, Amos talked about the Messiah coming in righteousness and justice. So those two subtle things, again, we don't pick it up in English. And we don't pick it up unless we dig a little deeper. We find, why did Matthew do that? And that's what the original audience would ask. And they see that what God was showing is that he's going to, he can take the broken, the most wicked, the most wayward, unjust people, and he can make something of it. And God's about taking that which is destroyed and making it new. And we find that here, the story that he's about to tell is about the story of God making all things new. Okay, still with me? I know this is a lot. It's a lot. The test is next Sunday. So it's not, some of you are actually like, oh, you can't take tests at this church. We don't. Go down to verse 16. Last thing. 
I've never preached this Christmas service or this Christmas story, by the way, this way. This is new for me. So, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, from David to the exile were 14, and from the exile to the Messiah were 14. So when David gets, or Matthew gets to the end of this, he says there's 14 generations, 14 before exile, 14, sorry, 14 till David, 14 until exile, and 14 till now when Jesus is born. Let me let you know, that's incorrect. There's most likely way more than that, and it's okay. In the ancient world, it was okay for them to not give you all the generations. He was doing something intentional. What did the original audience say? They'd say, why did you say 14, 14, 14? Because to us, there's a little bit of folklore going on here. In Hebrew, really quickly, in Hebrew, the first 10 letters of the alphabet all have a numerical value, kind of like Roman numerals. So the letter A, Aleph, is 1, Bet, is 2, the next one's Gimel, then Dalit. So on down. You don't have to remember that. The name for David in Hebrew is D-V-D. That's how you spell it. Three letters. Stands for four, six, and four. You add it up, it's 14. Now, you might be going, this isn't that complicated. No one would think that. We wouldn't think that, but let me ask you this. Those of you who are basketball fans, if I tell you who's number 23 in the basketball world, how many of you could answer that if you're basketball fans? I probably shouldn't say that here in San Diego because you guys are like, basketball fan? What are you talking about? But, yeah, I saw a few names go up back there. If we asked you maybe the number 42 in baseball, maybe how many of you can get 42? This goes deep. Oh, good. Way more. I'm proud of you. Way more. Yeah, Jackie Robinson. So we, we can, there's certain numbers that we just know. So into the ancient Hebrews, the number 14 was associated with David. So in this genealogy, Matthew arranges it, say David, David, David. What he was saying is, make no mistake, this story is the Messiah Jesus in the line of David, David, David. It was the most important part of the story for the first century Jews. One last thing, though. If you count the names, you get 14 fathers, then you get 14 fathers, and then the third section, you get 13. He's wrong. He didn't have 14. Because he ends, and he says the birth of Jesus, or it ends and says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. But there is no 14th father until we hear the story of Jesus' birth, which we'll start in the next verse, and we'll look at next week. The 14th father that Matthew wants us to know, it's not in descent. The 14th father is going to be God the father, and this is going to be a miraculous birth. And so we read it, and we just take for granted, 14, 14, 14, cool. But when you start counting, and trust me, I counted like four times this week. Like, is that true? Is that really only 13? And you find the 14th father will be mentioned in the next birth, our next story, when the Holy Spirit comes and God enters in. So we find that Matthew tells us, first of all, this is going to be the story of Jesus. It's a story of God using anyone and anything it's a story of God making all things new. And finally, this last big, and this was a big deal. Was it was a story of God with us. 
that this story of the Messiah is going to be actually God walking in your midst. We miss this when we read it in English, when we just pass by. But when we find out Matthew was actually this genius who is writing to an ancient audience that would say, this is unbelievable what you're saying. God is about to disrupt their world and disrupt everything that they were expecting. So as the band starts making their way back up, we find that Jesus is more than just the long-awaited Messiah. He's more than just ushering in some sort of new era or this in some scholars would call it the Jubilee of Jubilees, like this new era ushered in. He was more than that. Jesus as the Messiah was something entirely new and entirely different. He was making all things new, and he was God with us in the, their midst and in our midst. So this year as we end, you've been disrupted this year, all of us. Our year has been disrupted. Your lives have been disrupted. So let me just ask you this question. In the disruption, what are you learning? How are you growing, or how do you need to grow? Maybe the question for you is, what is God doing in the middle of the disruption? Or what does he want to do? One person said this. He said that we were expecting the year 2020 to be this year of vision. Every, every business and church is like, yeah, it's 2020. Here's our 2020 vision and looking ahead. He said, we thought it would be our year of vision, but it's become our year of clarity. Where we're able to actually look at our lives and see what really matters. Look at the, our lives and even our churches and see where are we missing out? Where have we gone astray? And for you as we end and you look at your disruption, where's the clarity that God wants to give you? Because the first century Jews who are about to see the Messiah, it was clarifying so much about what they believed and expected, and it was going to change everything. And I believe that story still changes us today. So let's pray, and we're going to respond with one last song and just allow the Spirit of God to move in this place and speak to our hearts. So I want to invite you to stand as we end. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, that even in a list of names, you can give us this amazing truth, these hints that you are a God who's moving in ways that we wouldn't expect, your story of God who's changing broken things and making them new, your story of a God who can use anyone and anything, and it's a story of a God who walks with us and will be very present. So we thank you for that, God, and I pray now that as we respond, would you allow us to experience your presence, be transformed by your name. Amen.